Welcome back to Grand Rounds, Season 1, Purpose in a Pandemic, a podcast brought to you by Leah Weiss and Jennifer Weiss. We are so excited to share our conversation with Father Gregory Boyle. Father Gregory Joseph Boyle is an American Roman Catholic priest of the Jesuit order. He's the founder and director of Homeboy Industries, which is the world's largest gang intervention and rehabilitation program. When Father Gregory began his effort to address the escalating problems and unmet needs of gang-involved youth in the late 1980s, his parish and community members developed this positive opportunity to establish an alternative school and daycare program, and it went from there. Father Gregory Boyle is a spirit with tenderness, kindness, who has taught generations of us to, as he says it, live in the margins. And we can't wait to share some thoughts from him today with you. We started by asking Father Gregory about healthcare disparities in 2020 and specifically disparities with access to mental health care. So now we exist as an organization, we 32 years now. So easily the first 15 years was uh, homies absolutely completely resistant and stigmatizing mental health, um, you know, therapy. They wouldn't do individual one-on-one. They wouldn't even do group stuff. It was kind of like, I'm not crazy, they would say with about a one-on-one suggestion. And then in a group, they'd say, well, I'm not going to tell anybody what happened to me. And and then I always uh, often tell this story about how um, uh, a homie called me in and he had an anxiety attack and, and uh, called me from a, an emergency room. So I went to pick him up. And of course, for the umpteenth time, you, you propose, you know, um, I said, hey, you know, it might help, you know, if you kind of talk to somebody. And and he immediately said, oh, you mean like analyze this? You know, the the, the movie with uh, Billy Crystal and Robert De Niro. I said, uh, yeah, like analyze this. Oh, okay. And suddenly the stigma had been lifted. I mean, it literally was, because then I got several homies referencing that movie. And then it was, one of those uh, shifts, you know, where it was literally a tipping point. Now, cut to 32 years later, the problem we have now, even with as many therapists as I mentioned to you, including two psychiatrists who prescribe, we have a waiting list. We've never had a waiting list before. So that means the stigma is gone and people are clamoring and and we're, you know, we have a lot of uh, what we call community clients, people just coming off the street. And there was a time because we never forced therapy. It was only, it just doesn't uh, work if if you're not a willing participant in it. And and so uh, and so we always had enough flexibility with community clients. Now we don't. We have to refer all those people, and the waiting lists are just our own people which is, uh, you know, a testament to, and that's a lot of therapists when you think about it, and it's still not enough. 
So that's really good news, you know, uh, that that people are, you know, I had a homie say to me, uh, he looks at his watch, oh, I got my appointment with my cuckoo clock doctor, he called him, her, actually. And, uh, and, and it was, you know, they, they were, they weren't uh, ashamed, embarrassed that they had, uh, at three o'clock, I have to see my therapist. That would have been unheard of in the first 10 years of Homeboy. There was just no way that ever would have happened. And then it did, which is good. I, you know, the LA County uh, uh, Mental Health uh, Department had a campaign about none of us are well until all of us are well. And it was on buses and billboards and, and and it's such a solidly um, wonderful kind of message that we belong to each other and that you know we, we imagine a circle of compassion and we imagine nobody outside that circle. And so we imagine all of us are well. So it's rather than um, you know being tribal or uh, us and them, it's really no, it's it's all black, you know, no lives matter until black, all, until black lives matter. None of us are well until all of us are well. And none of us are whole until all of us are whole. So it's a way of, uh, you know, moving beyond this, this thing. And, and, and health is, uh, I saw a big billboard in, in Toronto once and said, uh, you know, mental health is health. You know, and and only holy, only healthy people are holy people. You know, so it's a kind of a way of seeing now. Like, how do we help each other get to a place where they're whole and and healthy? Do you find that your community is um, is um, what is their reaction to this sort of healthcare disparity surrounding COVID? Um, and there's a socioeconomic disparity surrounding who gets their, not only who gets their care, but how they do. Are they, is that being recognized in your community? And is there anger? Is there sadness? Is there? Well, I, you know, I, I think, uh, especially with the convergence of COVID-19 and uh, the murder of George Floyd and a kind of, uh, new language and an enlightened, awakened sense of, of racial reckoning. You know, I, I think that the, um, the fault lines have been sort of revealed and, and, and screaming at us saying we need a new social contract. So, but I think it's kind of more, uh, you know, if I could dare to say, could more kind of white privilege and, and, and white folks kind of Oh, okay, uh, we see our complicity in this. So the awakening has happened at that level, I think. It, whereas the homies are just used to disparity and they're used to, um, you know, disproportionately being impacted by things like, um, you know, coronavirus and, um, police coloring outside the lines. So they're, they're kind of used to that. It's the awakening really uh, happened to, to other folks. And, uh, 
and principally white folks and privileged folks. And so that, that's kind of where it's happened. You know, the homies are just go, so what else is new? You know, that, that uh, communities, poor communities of color are more disproportionately impacted by this. You know, th there's not a lot of surprise there. But, you know, I think we're, um, we're, we're inching our way closer to something good, you know? I mean, I, I'm rarely hopeful and optimistic at the same time. And, and I kind of am at the moment. I, I just find it, it, there's something about the time where it's arduous and difficult. It's sort of galvanizing a magnanimous spirit in people. And, uh, but it's tough, you know, I mean, we, I, I get homies all the time who can't pay their rent and feed their kids. And, you know, that's always been the case, but it's certainly exacerbated now. Curious to hear um, you expand a bit on this um, reckoning or, or these fault lines being exposed with an overlay of, um, you know, for folks who are in a faith community. You know, I think there's there's kind of there's many questions to raise. But I mean, one being, you know, why is it that those of us who are faithful, who are aspirational, didn't see before um and then i guess you know maybe a more optimistic side of how to bring together the, re the spiritual religious resources with this hopefully growing uh consciousness to create like you know i hate that term consciousness awareness to help create ongoing kind of movement traction and like make it so that we don't go back to sleep and start sleepwalking until the next convergence of factors comes together that we wake up and notice for a, a little bit um but i'm really interested in this this um religious but also you know spiritual perspective of of people who aren't part of religious communities and want to grow spiritually through doing good work through finding practices that make sense to them i don't know there's a whole cluster of questions that i grapple with on this and i'd be so interested yeah. in no that's very good i i um uh, you know there's a lot of mythic things you know and, and certainly racism hides in systems you know and so that's harder to detect and and so but at least people are starting to kind of think in a different way oddly you know we've always had things that have you know befallen our this country you know and 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 you can kind of go oh my gosh katrina or you can say 911 and and whereas these things had implications, but they really hit New York and they really hit New Orleans and, and that kind of thing. But this was a thing that was uh, unlike anything, you know, I've ever seen, which was, it was the storm that hit us all. And, and yet we all weathered the storm in different sized vessels, you know, uh, uh, yachts and steamers and, steam liners and inner tubes and and clinging to some driftwood you know but it was the same storm but then we started to see oh people are 
Yeah, different. So frontline workers, essential workers, the poor can't really socially distance when, when you live in a house where you're, you're cheek to jowl. All these things all of a sudden become, you become aware of them, you know, precisely because the storm has hit us all, you know. And then, you know, there's, um, and I, you know, I've, I, I know I've, I've had two double funerals of COVID. So I, and I've I had multiple burials of folks who died because of the virus. And, um, you know, and it just is, it's a compounding of uh, life is already hard. And not because, you know, uh, again, you look at things like the ACEs, the Adverse Childhood uh, Experiences Study, and, and, you know, you have this kind of range of 10, and, 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 and everyone who walks through our doors at Homeboy is a nine or a 10 on the ACEs and I'm a zero. And, but that, that's, then you start to go, yeah, that's, that's not the moral myth, you know, that somehow, you know, I, I knew the difference between right or wrong or something. It's just, I won all these lotteries, you know, the zip code lottery, the parent lottery, the mental health lottery, the, the um, education lottery, the sibling lottery, that's it. And yet that, you know, destroys the myth that says, by God, you know, we were raised right. Well, it doesn't mean you weren't, except that it just means my life growing up in this city just was freed from all the stressors that has such an impact on the lives of the... So then you stand in awe at what folks have to carry rather than in judgment. And then you, you notice that, you know, they, they walk through our doors barricaded behind walls of shame and disgrace and you discover that only tenderness can scale those walls. And then you discover quite beyond religion that the highest form of spiritual maturity is, is tenderness. And then you embrace that way of being in the world. And, and it's, it's just the most powerful thing there is. So it's, it's not so much, uh, you know, get religion or return to religion or, but it's kind of a more authentic, we call it mystical uh, therapeutic mysticism as, as our, our cultural competence at Homeboy, that it's about seeing the whole person. And, and once you see wholeness, people inhabit wholeness. And, and once you, know, you extend the tender glance, people want to be the tender glance. And, and once you kind of notice the notice of God, then you're, you're kind of noticing people. And, and invisibility is kind of the, the, the thing you want to address. And, and so the homies always say, we're used to being watched, but we're not used to being seen. And, uh, and the homies will say, once you see me, I'll, I, I know what I look like. And, and so that's where you wanna live in that, that place that coaxes you into a softer corner. And listening to this, and 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 I'm my boundaries are softening. Listening to this, it's incredible. <laughs> um, and I'm curious 
being a physician, being an orthopedist, I have time boundaries. So if I want to be my best self, and after I heard you speak for the first time, I came into this like new mission of being a better doctor and connector. Um, do you have any thoughts for those of us who are on a clock with our connection? So physicians and clinicians, we don't get to sit with someone until we're able to open them up because then we can't get to all the people. And I'm sure you have that. I mean, you, there's so many clamoring for your time, us being some of them today. How do you, how do you parse that out? Yeah, I, I'm not good at it. I mean, I, it's like, uh, you know, take a number and get in line. That, that's sort of how it works. And uh, I'm not happy about that. I, you know, I used to look back at my early days when I was ordained a priest in 84 and I was first assigned to Dolores Mission. Hours, I would spend hours with people. I can't, I can't even imagine it now. Where, you know, that was, you know, really a, a very moving two hours I just spent with you. Well, like that's impossible. I mean, literally impossible. It's been years that I've ever done it, such a thing like that because, you know, they're just lined up and, and you have to make the most of whatever moment you have. And then you supplement, at least this is what I do, you know, you supplement it with a, a text, you know, it, it, and I'm an introvert. So, you know, there's a book out that says something like, uh, <laughs> uh, text don't call you know and and that's kind of you know I, I i always say this to our mutual friend leah to jim oswald you know text don't call because it's like um and part of that's an introvert's way of uh, operating but the other thing is like texting is this magical thing where you can suddenly think of somebody and they're completely astounded that you're thinking about. And sometimes I do, I do cell phone roulette. I used to do this a lot when I was waiting for planes. I'd scroll down and I'd, I'd go, hey, Louie, how you doing? How's that baby? Is the baby sleeping through the night? And they're just completely astounded that you would think of them, you know? And I try to do that a lot because I, I know um, I can't spend two hours with them. But you can do that, and it's a it's a way of people they feel connected, you know, and but it's you do what you can do, and um, and what I have is five minutes, and and it's gonna be it's gonna be packed, <laughs> and uh, you know I can't do uh, an hour, but I can do five minutes, and I'll try to make it as tender as as I can. It's hard at Homeboy at the moment because we're a very tactile, huggy crowd. And that kind of carries you. Because you see people in the hallway, this happens just, this is, this is our culture. And, uh, you know, we have morning meeting, which now it's been, it'll be almost a year since we've had one. And, and we're packed in the reception area. And it's, you know, thought for the day and people seeing happy birthday and people are crying and people are howling with laughter and it ends and and it's a hug fest always has been 
and we just can't do it. And it's, uh, that's the hardest thing because we're, we're really affectionate that way and we have to find new ways and it's not very satisfying, you know, um, but, but we're getting through it. But, you know, part of the thing is, you know, you don't wanna, obviously, you know, all this, you know, you don't fix, save, rescue people and uh, which frees you to, to make the most of your five minutes with that person or half hour or whatever it is because uh, all you're asked to do is what you can. I have a question following up on that. You know, it strikes me that so much gets decided in that first framing of what we can and can't do. Um, you know, from a perspective of compassion, is a person worth it? Do I have the resources? What change is possible? But I feel like, you know, hearing you talk about this idea of therapeutic mysticism, it reminded me of, of my favorite moment in many years of graduate school, um, taking a sacramental theology course from Father Michael Himes and hearing his voice boom out of um of sacramentality being about the really real but when he said the really real you know echoed and i i come back to that again and again because i think so much of what you, i hear you saying and the potential of holding a person in who they really are underneath trauma, underneath the lottery they haven't won, um, all these kinds of things become so important. And I know one of the sets of questions people always, you know, ask me is, is, you know, all the set of fears of compassion and what if I am acting in good faith and I'm wrong? And what if the people around me, you know, are, are not at, at the end of the day gonna act in good faith in response um but i imagine you know you how how do you think about for those of us who move back and forth from a place of having kind of courage to live more along the lines of what you're suggesting and then navigating just kind of fear of our own small beliefs about what we can do what other people really are, uh, you know, what, how do you think about like, what's really real here, these limitations or the, I mean, you clearly created a whole alternate world around what you believe, but how do you, when people come in and they can't see that, they can't trust that. Uh, yeah. What do you do? Well, you know, uh, it's all kind of a mindset, you know, I think, you know, I remember I was in Chicago and after a talk, I gave a, a senior who was about to graduate from a university. And I, of course I had just spent, spent an hour talking about go to the margins, you know, and that's how they get changed. And it's a little bit like Brian Stevenson who talks about get proximate. I would say, go to the vicinity, you know, somehow locate yourself at the margins and that's how they get erased. And so anyway, I went on and on about that. And, uh, and she came up 
And she said, I'm afraid to go to the margins. And I said, why? And she said, because I'm afraid I, I won't fit in. And, uh, you know, sometimes you have these frogs that leap out of your mouth and, I, and this was one of those. And I said, you know, if it's about you, you'll always be afraid. And then I felt kind of bad that I had said that. But I also think it's true, you know, that what, what keeps us fearful is a kind of self-involved, self-absorbed, I don't mean selfish, I think she's a very good person. So it has nothing, it's not a moral judgment. It's just in the end, I mean, I'll kind of, what does God want? My joy, yours, your joy complete, period. And, and the joy happens in kinship and connection. And so, you know, I, I mean, I kind of pull out my hair if I had any, I, I'd pull out more, you know, but I, it's like the church is, is sometimes gets stuck in sadness and fear. And what we're being asked in, in terms of authentic living, forget spirituality or religion, authentic living is, is, is gauged. I mean, we calibrate our health by joy and bravery. And, and that's how you know. So, so you, it doesn't have defense. There's no armor around your heart. It's not protective. It's not circle the wagons. It's widen the circle. So, you know, so this is how you know. And it's interesting because uh, I, I, I find it, there's a kind of privilege paralysis that I find on university campuses, I never found that before. Whereas before it was zeal and, and fight and not to count the cost and sign me up and I wanna set the world on fire. And now, I mean, it was really kind of startling in the last several years not to get that, you know. I, I can remember, um, is Himes at Georgetown? Boston College. Boston College, that's right. But it was Georgetown students came and uh, and we always, you know, pre-pandemic, we had a lot of um, immersion groups, you know. University students would come and spend five days. It was always wonderful, mutually exquisite, you know. But I, you know, I do my thing. They, hey, the Georgetown students are ready for you. So I run upstairs and they're in there <coughs> and basically a q a because they've spent all week or whatever with with homies you know and one woman a kind of um with a kind of an edge in her voice she says what makes you qualified to do this work and i i was kind of startled and there was a homie uh, <laughs> kind of sitting over there and he goes, damn, like that. <laughs> it was kind of, it elicited exactly that reaction. What made what makes you qualified to do this work? And, and I stood there silent and I, and I, I just put my fingers on my pulse and I said, a pulse? And I didn't mean to be a brat, but I, I, I wanted to say, we so disqualify ourselves on the one hand, and we 
there's a paralysis that says, what is a white person doing over here kind of thing, you know? And, and otherwise it becomes rarefied and specialized and, and, you know, which is nonsense, which is the opposite of kinship that says uh, only, you know, <clears throat> former gang members need apply. Now, you know, our leadership is certainly folks who've come up through the ranks and, and I hope they'll run the place. But, but that's a dilemma, you know, the paralysis part that kind of feels it's disrespectful to go to the margins when, you know, everybody is saying that's the only way they get erased is to have you go out at them. You can't just phone it in or write your congressperson. So, um, but I, it, that's kind of a sadness to me because there was this uh, zeal, I don't know other, what other word to apply to it, that kind of marked, you know, everything that goes back to, um, you know, the Peace Corps in the 60s, to the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, to, to whatever, you know, and then it kind of, uh, gosh, I, I, I don't want to be disrespectful by going to an underserved community and casting my lot, you know. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's a thing that's kind of reared its head in a way that I think is alarming. It's, it's very, um, very interesting to hear you say that. Um, I have another question about fear. And it's funny because when I heard you speak, I think it was about two years ago at um, the Movement is Life Caucus that Mary O'Connor invited you. And I asked a question and your answer has been rattling around in my head for years. Um, because I asked you if you ever did get scared and you shared some beautiful words about, about not so much. So what I am curious about is for me personally, I'll describe a short vignette that's descriptive of what many physicians, clinicians, and I think anybody who's working or trying to work toward the margins might experience. I had a patient, he was black, and I went into his room to take care of him and there was a gun on the ground and I got very scared. Um, I left the room and came to find out that he is a police officer and that's why he had a gun. And the experience of recovering from the shame of my fear um, is with me a year and a half later. This actually happened after I heard from you. And so one of the things that was rattling around to bring me back around was what would Father Gregory do sort of, um, sort of approach. So I am curious, and it's been many months and my heartbeat is still up when I am shameful about fearing this man who is a police officer. Yeah, I, I don't think there's, there's something about your, you know, your heart being in your throat that's a, just a human thing. And and some people will say, you know, kind of what's the opposite of fear is, is, is love. Hate is not the opposite of fear. But, but there's a kind of a reason. Sometimes people don't like that. You know, people go, eh, not so much. You know, uh, 
But love is this thing that transports you, and it's our true self, to find your true self in loving. Then it's always outside of you, and then you love being loving. And it doesn't mean that there won't be moments when you're caught short, but I don't think that's fear. I think that's, you know, like, like I don't like uh, roller coasters. I don't know why you'd pay money to have somebody give you that sensation. But I don't know if that's about fear. Like I, I'm not one bit afraid of death and I'm not one bit afraid of dying. But I don't like turbulence, you know? So it's kind of like, uh, like I'm, I'm more, uh, I'm scared of being frightened. So that just means I don't like the sensation. I don't like, oh my God, I just had my heart in my throat. So I was in so many shootouts in the old days and um, it never made me fearful. It just put my heart in my throat, you know? But it's interesting, you know, what's, um, uh, homie, right, uh, you know, I have a, what I call my dearly deported. And, and they're all, you know, homies who, who finish a, whatever length of prison term and then get deported because they, they made the mistake of not protesting when they were in their mom's arms and she was coming to this country. Anyway, so they get deported and I speak better Spanish than, than a lot of these guys, you know. But a, a homie emailed me uh, yesterday completely out of his mind, I don't know what you would call it, terror. And he and his grandmother in LA uh, went to the hospital. I thought maybe it was COVID it, and it wasn't. And he was, if she dies, I don't know what I will do. I, I can't live if she dies. Now I know his grandmother, a wonderful woman, and she's, you know, 80. And he and she raised him, so I I get the emotional con connection, and I know it's about something other than death. Even it's about you know the traumatized get triggered because it it triggers a whole abandonment thing, and there's kind of unaddressed sorrow that that kind of rises. And yet, you know, so this morning he emailed me she was released from the hospital, she's gonna be okay. And so I wrote him and I said, you know, I got good advice once, you know, um, you know, try to die before you die. You know, death is a punk, death has no power. You, you have to actually remove the power from death. Your grandmother's going to die and so are you and so am I. And, and there's, don't wait for your last breath, just delight in your next one. And so uh, I'm going on and on like that. <laughs> and I'm waiting to see if, how he writes back, you know, none of us get out of this alive. But if you know this now, it, you know, that no, an exception won't be made in your grandmother's case. I don't know how to break this to you. A homie the other day was, we were having this conversation. He turns to homie, he goes, have you ever read in a newspaper, man lives forever? No, it doesn't happen. And there's something liberating about it. And so then, then you can just delight 
in the present moment. You can be anchored. You, you can be tethered to the God who loves you without measure and without regret. And you can be focused on somebody other than yourself. And that's not a grim duty. That's where the joy is. And so that's kind of the secret of life. Otherwise, you really do stay stuck in sadness and fear. And so for me, it's never about good or evil, right or wrong. It's about, you know, sadness or joy, uh, fearlessness or bravery or fear. That's what it's about. And all of that is measured, is a measure of our health. Healthy people are fearless people. Healthy people are joyful people. And so, you know, organized religion kind of screwed this up because it, it, it fell for sin and it fell for separation and it fell for tribalism and purity and us and them. And it's too bad because it, it's kept people stuck in sadness and fear. But the whole, the end game is joy and, and bravery. And, and that's what you, that's, that's health. So even when, you know, uh, you know, campaigns, you know, stop the hate. And I, and I always wince. I go, what do you think you're talking about? stop the hate. I mean, who hates somebody who's not healthy? Well, then how about increase the health? Isn't that feels more sound to me? Because if it stopped the hate, you have to sever belonging. If you say evil, you have to sever belonging. But once it's, let's increase the health. You're, you're, you haven't touched the belonging. And, and in the community of beloved belonging is kind of what we're all called to. Um, but, but, you know, as a physician and, and both of you know, I mean, it's, it's about, di everything's about diagnosis. You know, if you think the guy who shot up the tree of life synagogue in, in, in Pittsburgh, if you think that really is about hate, I think that's not very sophisticated. But if you think it's about health, then everyone belongs to you. And you go, how do we help people get to, to health? And I haven't had, I, you don't need to sever as, but moral compass has become just moral outrage. Who can scream the loud, loudest? And, and if I thought, moral outrage helped, I'd be outraging, you know, but, and, and the homies have taught that to me because, because the homies always talk about find the thorn underneath. Once you find the thorn underneath, you go, oh, that's why he did what he did. That, that, that's sort of where that's coming from. Doesn't excuse it, but I think smart people try to explain stuff. And that's the whole power of diagnosis because nobody has met a bad diagnosis 
that led to a healthy treatment plan. I don't think that's ever happened. I don't think it can happen. But the minute you kind of go, oh, I see what this is with an understanding heart, you know, that can get underneath things and say, oh, that's a really unhealthy person who did that. And how could we have found that person before this horrific thing happened? Because that person belongs to us. That's, and then suddenly the family circle gets wider and that's what we need to do is widen the circle. Let me ask you something. I once said something like that in front of a ballroom filled of psychiatrists. And I think I was talking about Dylan Roof and how, uh, you know, he was the one who killed uh, the eight folks in Mother Emanuel Church. And, you know, again, it's, it's, you know, this isn't about hate or racism or white supremacy. This is about health and how do we help people. And, you know, and, and you know, a, a psychiatrist determined that he's healthy so we can execute him. And, and, and I've lived with prosecutors and law enforcement always saying he knew exactly what he was doing. Like the measure of health is he carried out this act. He couldn't be mentally ill because he carried out this act. Anyway, I said this to a room full of psychiatrists, basically saying, we belong to each other. And how do we help each other? And that, you know, if you just say racist or white supremacist, it's just a way of striking a high moral distance so that you can sever belonging. And, and I don't think that's where we need to be. Anyway, they were horrified, you know, because they think this stigmatizes uh, the mentally ill. And I go, I, I don't, what are our options? Not talk about it? It doesn't make any sense to me. And, I, and I, I will speak very personally and painfully here, but I had two nephews who five years apart, both of them hung themselves. And they, you know, uh, they didn't choose that mental illness, it shows them, and you can even trace it through their father, through their grandfather. They didn't choose it. And, and the voices in their heads would just became, and, and, and even a kind of a noble, the voices saying, if you don't do this, we will harm your family. I mean, now, does every mentally ill person do that? Of course not. Does every mentally ill person shoot up Mother Emanuel Church? Of course not, or shoot through the fl highest floor of, of a Las Vegas hotel and kill all those people? Of course not. But every person who does belongs to us. And aren't well, I don't know how else, what other language, but I don't think it stigmatizes, it, it just keeps us from talking about it. Now, what am I not understanding about that? I feel what you are saying as a, as a doctor, as a diagnostician, 
um, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, but any, any physician, anyone who has a pulse has to care about these things. And I think that we, we have a phrase when we are talking about leading physicians um, that we worry about whose cheese we're moving. And I wonder if that was a cheese moving moment that caught them off guard. It's just, it's a vexing thing. And they were, I don't, they were kind of unanimous. Like, hey, they came up to me afterwards. You might not want to say that ever again. I go, oh, are you nuts? I mean, seriously. I mean, it's like, to me, it feels like it goes without saying that not every person who, who's diagnosed with real life mental illness, not every does horrific things. I think that goes without saying, maybe it doesn't. But it's like the homies have taught me that, you know, because you can, you know, you can see real mental illness. And it's like, you know, son, you need, you need to, you know, meds, don't be afraid of meds. You need to kind of, your, your, your boat is taking water, taking in water. You just need to lift your boat a little bit. And, and the voices, it's scary. And not one of them said, I think I might, you know, and then, uh, you know, assume uh, a, a mental illness or, and then of course, virtually all uh, drug addiction, in my experience, is, is just uh, masking or self-medicating. You know, it's like, I don't know what to do with these feelings, but meth, meth seems to work, you know. Leah, what do you think about, because I really am vexed by it. I mean, I, it's interesting when I started looking at some of the measures that people use around measuring compassion, the whole thing um, took me a really long time to relate to, especially these kind of like fears of compassion skills that are so widely used and, um, and, you know, literally trying to assess attitudes around if I demonstrate compassion, what will happen to me? Will I be manipulated? Will I be this? Will I be that? And, and it's interesting because I think, you know, maybe from spending too long in, in the kind of analysis, paralysis, academia on some of these topics, it, it feels familiar. And that doesn't mean that I that I um, that I understand it any like in terms of how to change that attitude, I guess is really, you know, the, the way that I go about it, when I'm have the opportunity to kind of do more experiential processing or teaching people contemplative methods or whatnot, is, is to get them to unpack, like, where did this come from? And how is this this belief, you know, basically a limiting belief that's narrowing your ability to connect to the world. But that's like a long process that people have to want to engage with. And I think that's where I feel stuck with so much of the polarized uh, out group 
discourse we have going right now because it, it is it's confounding to me i know how to move people who are entrenched on it and and i think the kind of normalizing of just really uncivil behavior um and is not helping any of this but you know but again, so I, it's it's not about you know again i've testified so many times in death penalty sentencing you know where where they monstracize they demonize they say he's a monster and 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 i'm watching this guy who i've never met before but because i'm a gang expert and he's a gang member i'm watching him talking to himself holding on a conversation with somebody who isn't there turning his head and talking like and i'm going you know i'm no psychiatrist you know and if I saw somebody with a, a bone protruding their arm, well, I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I think there's something wrong with his arm. You know, so, but it's, but there's kind of a baseline thing that says, for me anyway, we belong to each other. Demonizing is the opposite of truth, always. There are no exceptions to that. And I would say demonizing is the opposite of God. God is inclusion. And that everybody is unshakably good. That's where you begin. And so, so I have to, I have no exceptions in that, in that mindset. So, you know, I hate to go there, but I mean, you know, people will say like Trump, my God, well, how come he doesn't feel any empathy. I go, well, I'm no psychiatrist, but there's a bone protruding from his arm. You know, it's like, obviously this, because I know what sociopaths are, and I know what malignant narcissists are, and, and you, you kind of, in your head, you calibrate hell, all the while saying he belongs to us. But then people go, no, he's evil, he's an asshole, he's a racist. I go, no, that's how that's how his mental illness presents. You know, now you would have hoped his kids would have taken the car keys away from him when he decided to run for president. No, dad, you really can't run for president. But that didn't happen. And then, but then people couldn't see, they couldn't see it, you know? And so I had a homie the day after the election, African-American gang member who works for us, who's a trainee. And, you know, did you vote? Yeah. And he goes, I just couldn't vote for Joe Biden. And I said, why not? He said, well, you know, because he's a child molester. Now that's not about disinformation. It's, it's a way you calibrate health. Does a healthy person, and homies really buy conspiracy theories. Oh my God. But that's not about, just about disinformation or where are you getting your news? A healthy person doesn't buy conspiracy theories because it's a measure of your health. And, and sort of like, you know, so a woman is screaming at a CNN reporter at that mega million march, million mega march or whatever it was called after the election. She's screaming at the reporter and saying, why aren't you covering the fact that China has sent thousands and thousands of ballots? Okay. Now you can argue with her and try to win the argument and, and talk about disinformation, but a healthy person 
isn't going to buy that stuff. And, and it partly because of a healthy person trusts, I'm going to get a, a, a you know, I'm going to get vaccinated. Why? Because I'm a Democrat? No, because I'm a relatively healthy person. But, you know, so I'm, homie is talking about the, the election and a week later, and I said, well, we have a new president. Not so fast, he texts me. Well, that's not because we're on different political sides. I know this kid and I know how he's not quite at health yet. He's getting there, but he's not there. And how do I know? He thinks the election was stolen from Donald Trump. Again, this isn't about, you know, read a newspaper once in a while. This is, is how you calibrate health. Healthy people have a trust and, and, and people who aren't healthy uh, by conspiracy theory. So, but the thing that distances us, that strikes the high moral distance, all that stuff is untruthful. So I, I don't hate Donald Trump. I, in fact, I have huge compassion for him and he's unfit to be president. So I can hold both those things at the same time without once demonizing him, without, you know, without severing belonging. He belongs to us. And, and I would not want to carry the anguish that he carries. To, to be such a stranger, joy and, and bravery are, are, these are foreign terrains for him. And, and that fills me with sadness. But I don't have to hate him. He belongs to us. And none of us are well until all of us are well. So I don't know. I, I got off on a tangent there, but I, I needed your two expert um, takes on this. It's such a timely, you know, thread that you're on and you know maybe you've been so generous with your time and i will i will not keep you but one one final question um i'm curious if there's any practices that you can suggest to help you've used the word joy a few times and it's something that just like you know i've gotten to hang out with you twice in the last two weeks and and i, I there's some joy that's happening in your situation. It's quite clear. What practices can you recommend to those of us who are trying to bring a little bit more, uh, I don't like the word authentic joy, but like real joy, things to do to get back to who we're trying or intend to be before we get confused? Yeah, you know, I, I um, in that, uh, uh, Mr. Rogers movie with Tom Hanks, you know, where the, the journalist who's kind of the central character and he's watching Mr. Rogers at a rope line being so attentive to people and shaking every hand. And then he turns to this woman, introduces himself and it's Mrs. Rogers. And he says, how's it feel to be married to a living saint? And she kind of winces. She goes, I don't really like that word, you know, because it, it suggests that who he is and how he is is unattainable to people. And then she turns, she kind of zeroes in on him. And she says, you know, he's not a perfect person. He gets angry. 
but he works at it. And then she says, it's a practice. And I, I don't know, when I saw that scene, I kind of went, yeah. So it's not so much, here is my practice, you know, you know, praying or walking or whatever the practice is. It's really a way of saying it's a decision. You choose it and you have to practice at it. And you have to practice choosing it in every moment. And that was kind of liberating for me because I went, oh, it's intentionality. It's a, it's a decision that you make not once and for all, but with every breath, you decide to be anchored in somebody other than yourself. You, you just focus on somebody other and you love that person and you go where love has not arrived and you love what you find. And then you go, oh, wow, that's joyful. And that's where I wanna be. And I know I have to choose it every, every minute of the day because I'm gonna get caught up. So my friend Pema Chodron, you know, always talks about catching yourself because you have, we have this propensity, she says, and I get it. And, and it's not about ridding yourself of yourself. It's not about having a grudge match with yourself. It's about catching yourself. And that's the practice. It's not a particular kind of, uh, you know, strategy other than the generic choosing and deciding. And here's my intention. But because we are self-absorbed, not selfish, not bad, not sinful, we're self-absorbed and we worry and are anxious. And that's why we're invited, I think, to live, to live in the living room, which is the present moment, et cetera. Otherwise, we're, we're lamenting what I said yesterday, and that's the bathroom. Or we're anxious about tomorrow, which is the kitchen. But the living room is, is where you're supposed to be. That's your intentionality. It's a practice. He works at it. And, and, and that's, that was very uh, liberating for me because I thought, yeah, that's, that's what it is. Anyway. Love that. It's a pleasure being with you guys. You too. Really so grateful for your time and your spirit and everything about you. So thanks. Thanks. And the, it, the feeling's mutual. Thanks for being here. Really, really grateful. Shabbat Shalom. Thanks. <laughs> back at you. That's a big boomerang. The homies always say, that's a big boomerang. <laughs> that just means back at you. So as our time with Father Gregory Boyle, and as he calls it, therapeutic mysticism, sits and settles in all of us, I hope that you have enjoyed season one of Grand Rounds, Purpose in a Pandemic. We can't wait to connect with you again soon.